0: This is KTO News Juno, where you are about to hear the last of the summer 2018 Mudrooms Sampler programs. Mudrooms is a live storytelling event in Juno that runs from September through May. The program is about to start its eighth season on Tuesday, September 11th, with seven personal stories on the theme Lost and Found. This broadcast is a compilation of stories told over the first five Mudrooms seasons. Enjoy! Scandling's story is the first in tonight's lineup. It was recorded in February 2012 on the theme For the Love of It.
1: Our next guest is Lori Scandling. Lori was born and raised in Alaska. Her dad was a game warden, so she and her family lived in various places, including Haines, Kodiak, Anchorage, and Fairbanks. Lori never participated in normal children's games, though she did spend time shooting guns, fishing. Canoeing, hiking, and using a bow and arrow. She's been in Juneau since, I have three question marks. uh, What? 1978. 1978. And how do you know that? Um, When she was passing through 34 years ago, there you go, she heard on an AM radio station that the station had fired the news director for fabricating a letter from an Alaska senator So Lori drove to the station, presented herself, and was hired. She went from being a rabble rouser in high school in Fairbanks to her current job as the assistant superintendent of schools in Juneau. She was also a reporter for a decade. Along her life journey, she's been a partner in the Bluecast political comedy troupe for 33 years and was a group fitness instructor for 15 years. Neither experience has been a guarantee of being funny or skinny. Lori Scanling.
2: Well, it occurred to me this morning that it was five years ago this morning that my mother died and I, I kissed her goodbye. And I tell you that because really, she she was the best storyteller of all. There were times we traveled together in cars and between playing the ukulele, she would tell stories and we'd go, that was a 60 miler. But for this theme, for the love of it, I want to tell you about my mom and, a, my, mom and my dad. Um, my mom was 19 years old. And she came into her garage uh, in a very ritzy suburb of Detroit, Michigan, with a box of brownies under her arm. And there was my father, who had driven to Alaska with her brother in a half-ton truck the year my mother graduated from high school, which would have been 1950. Now, my mother, throughout her life, was an impulsive romantic. And she once told me later that she had read Wuthering Heights and the idea of making love with the game warden in front of the hearth ever remained with her. <laughs> and my father, later to become my father, apparently making love on a hearth somewhere, had been a US Fish and Wildlife agent, um, actually a colleague of Jay Hammond back in the early 1950s. And my mom was um, apparently romantically smitten. They had a, 10 dates. Uh, during which they kissed once, and he turned to her and said, you smell like V.O. Uh, That would be like saying you smell like Jägermeister today. He went back to Alaska, and uh, throughout the fall, they wrote letters, and one of the letters implied he would like to have a fishing partner, and three weeks later, he was back in Detroit, and my parents got married. And my mother left, they drove across the country, and they ended up in Kenai, where my dad was stationed still with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife. And my mom lived in about a 19-foot trailer and not too long afterwards had an infant, me, who had colic. So it was, went from a very wealthy lifestyle. Her father had been vice president of General Motors for many years. They had maids even during the Depression. She shopped for sport for just a pastime to this life on the Kenai Peninsula in a trailer really kind of a trailer. You hooked on the back of a truck and took places. So I'm going to zoom ahead. My, my mother had three children in three years, not unlike women of her generation. It's, as she said, well, you had an experience. And her experience was going to college for one year and then Europe. And then you got married. That was just expected. And by age 27, she had four children. And my parents could really not have been more different. I once said to my mother, so if you were going to have your ashes anywhere, where would that be? And she said, at the Hudson Bay shopping mall in Detroit. <laughs> now for my father, he said, well, I'd want to have somebody pack them up on a saddle bag of a horse and that that string of horses would go up into the Brooks Range and just leave me there. My parents had virtually diametrically opposed ideas of what fun was, what pleasure was, what pastime was. My father was a completely outdoor person, and I'm not kidding when I say I never played youth soccer. I mean, we were outdoors shooting pistols and bows and arrows, and that was just our life. Hiking, hunting, fishing, and my mother's idea of sport, again, was shopping. Well, when I was 30 years old, I had infant twins, so I was vulnerable anyway. Um, If you've ever had two babies at once, you're pretty fragile. They were little, and my mother called and said, I'm leaving your father. And I, like Virginia Woolf says, I want a room of one's own. And she did, and she had that room in Arizona, which was pretty far from the Kenai Peninsula at that point. So my parents ended up actually living apart for some years. They didn't get divorced. They lived apart until... At age 64 years old, after 37 years of marriage, which included conjugal visits between my parents when my father drove to Arizona during the winter time, he came out of the closet as a gay man. Now, let me tell you that theoretically, when other people are gay, it's great. When it's somebody that you thought you knew for your entire life, it's an adjustment. As my husband said, that's like saying John Wayne is gay. Now I kind of think maybe that's possible. There's really, no, there's, there's no one now that would surprise me. My dad, I swear, was Mr. Alaska. We called him Mr. Alaska. He was the most virile person I think I ever knew. But you can only imagine, you can only imagine from my mother, who said, thanks a lot, 37 years, now I'm old and fat. I was young and beautiful at one time why didn't you, why didn't you, why didn't you just tell me then? And I asked that directly to my father. I said, you owe me some answers. And what he said was, hey, you know, it was World War II. (laughs) Talk about ask, don't ask, don't tell. That's not gonna happen. And he said, and I really liked your mom a lot. She's really my best friend. And I really wanted to have children. So my parents were apart. And my father had a wonderful boyfriend, great guy. We loved him. And then my mother had a heart attack. And my parents had been divorced. And my mother said, would you remarry me for health insurance? And he said yes. So the three of them were at the wedding together. (laughs) And she moved in with the two of them. And they nursed her back to health. And then she moved back to Arizona. She had come back to Alaska for her recovery. And then my dad moved down to Arizona with his partner. And my mother got this most wonderful apartment if you've ever been to Bisbee, Arizona. It's an old mining town, not too unlike Juneau in so many ways. And she was getting ready to move in, and I went down to see her cute apartment with raw brick walls and just beams showing really cute. And um, my dad was diagnosed with cancer. She never did unpack those boxes. She moved in with him. By then, he was not living with John anymore and slept on the floor by his bed as she cared for him until he died. And that was for the love of it. Thank you.
0: Next up is a story told by Mark Ridgway in December 2012's Mudrooms event. The theme for the evening was
1: Gifts. Next up, we have Mark Ridgway. He grew up in Ketchikan in Anchorage, and he's lived in Juneau long enough to know he'd eventually get suckered into doing something like this. <laughs> he works for the U.S. Coast Guard, has an enormous fear of public speaking is married to the most beautiful woman in the world. Sounds like he's trying to earn points. And he recently sold the Goldtown Nickelodeon Theater to Donald Trump for $7. Mark, did I miss the million in there? Mark Ridgway.
3: Alrighty. Well, gifts. Gifts, gifts, gifts. Of course, they, they do take all sorts of kinds. Uh, plastic totem poles from China. Um, I was going to tell a story about an enormous moose rack that some Aleuts gave me, but uh, it was pretty gruesome, the story, so I decided to pass on that. <clears throat> um, this is my Canadian story. So, uh, I was in my 20s. I was like 20 years old, and I was stuck down in Washington State, uh, super broke, didn't have any money, and uh, I was thinking, like, okay, well, i got to get home. i got a commercial fishing job, and I was all set to hitchhike back up the Alcan. And my sister calls me up out of the blue, and all of a sudden she says, hey, I've got an Audi, turns out, and uh, I need somebody to drive it up the Alcan. <clears throat> and uh, so I say, yeah, absolutely. She even offered to pay for gas, which is awesome. And I almost didn't hear her when she said, I also have a sailboat. So <laughs> she just bought this, like, gorgeous, my sister's a really good sailor. And she bought this 14, 16-foot sailboat, just gorgeous sailboat. And it was on a little trailer, and I went and checked it out. And I go, okay, yeah, well, we can do this. Audi's got plenty of power. So I go around Olympia, Washington, and, uh, and uh, find a, a welder who can put a tow hitch on it. Of course, Audis don't come with tow hitches, standard package. And the guy looks at it, and he goes, okay, well, yeah, I can do that. <clears throat> and, you know, he did it. And he didn't charge me much, which is good, I thought, at the time. Uh, it looked like a good hitch. So... So off I go, and, and it was great, it was spring, there weren't a lot of cars, and it was beautiful weather, and I didn't get hassled at the border, first time for everything. Um, and I wasn't even really in a hurry, which you normally are when you're driving the Alcan. Uh, so I actually stopped, and of course, what do I find? A bunch of polite Canadians everywhere you look. Um, <laughs> it's about two days into the trip, and uh, I'm, I'm pulling into, uh, I'm in northern B.C., and I'm pulling into, uh, uh, it's a four-lane, highway, it turns into a four-lane highway, and I'm pulling into, I think the town's Prince Rupert, uh, and it's a big corner, big banked corner and I look back and there's a boat and I checked the boat of course a hundred times in the last two days. This time though the boat was like about a hundred feet behind me, it's totally <laughs> totally separated from the car. And I'm looking back in kind of horror and amazement really and there's sparks flying off and the tongue was, it was amazing, it was like somebody was driving the boat, it was like perfectly going. And it, but it was getting pulled towards the outside of the corner which was a high bank. So eventually, I'm, I'm looking, and it just disappears. So I pull over. I pull over, and I'm, of course, I'm thinking, well, yeah, even the Canadians can probably trace a license plate. So, so I back up. <clears throat> I'm backing up the, on the shoulder of the highway. And actually, this other car was pulling up then. There's this young couple in it, and they had actually been going the other way. And uh, as, I, as I got out of the car, this young guy runs up to me and goes, oh, man, do you see that thing? It just flew off. It just flew off. And I'm going... Yeah, yeah, it did. Uh, <laughs> so I, I go up to the bank, right? And it says, hi, bank. And I'm, of course, what am I going to find? I'm going to find shards of fiberglass and twisted metal and maybe a little sail flapping in the breeze. Um, I peer over, and way down there is this just little muskeg with the f- print of a boat in it. <laughs> and uh, it's got the trailer outline. And then like 15 feet beyond that, kind of sitting on a bush, there's the boat, and it doesn't, like, it doesn't have a scratch on it. I'm like going, oh, this is great. And then I realized, like, how the, hell am I, how the heck am I going to get it up there? Like, uh, I'm thinking, well, as I'm thinking, like, okay, well, I could take the plate off. And I don't even notice this big, huge uh, Royal Canadian Mounted Police guy had pulled up and is standing right beside me. Huge guy. And he just is really quiet. He's just looking down. He goes, oh. and, the, and the young guy's there. It just flew off. It just flew off. And, uh. And and the RCMP guy just goes, "Well, all right then." And he turns around and he walks over the highway and uh, and he like starts pointing at cars and he's like like it's the most natural thing in the world. Of course, of course that's what you're going to do. And so before you know it, there's like uh, he pulls over a semi and there's his pickup truck and like now there's eight guys sitting up on on the top of this road. And then he goes, "All right, boys." And it was just the weirdest thing. So we all, you know, he kind of just herds us down there, and we all go down this steep gravel thing. And like 45 minutes of work, you know, everybody's grunting and lifting at once. And like every five minutes, you know, we stop and rest. And, and every time we rest, I get to hear the young guy tell somebody else, hey, man, it just I saw it, he just flew right off. And, uh, and so anyway, but we get it all the way back up to the road in like 45 minutes an hour. And he can't tell anything except these big globs of muskeg stuff still stuck to it. And that was it. Um, people just kind of went back to their car, and I, I thanked them profusely, like, hey, thank you very much. And, uh, and, of course, the last guy to leave was a trooper who, like, uh, you might want to get that hitch looked at. <laughs> uh, I said, OK, yeah, you know, so I, I ended up going into town and finding a hardware store, and, and having somebody look at the hitch. And it was, uh, turns out it was a, a lock washer, $0.15, cents, $0.12 cents Canadian. Uh, <laughs> that's all I needed, that, and a new bolt. I get in the car, and I make it, um, you know, unscathed all the way back up. My sister still got the sailboat, but that's, my, that's about my favorite kind of gift. Uh, it's the kind of gift that it's a stranger shows up and just helps you out, and they don't, they don't expect anything in return, and they don't think they're going to get recognized for it. Of course, there was the huge RCMP guy, kind of everything, but they could have turned around and left, and I really do think that uh, that's one of the special types of gift in life. And I can say that in the last 25 years or so, since then, I've I've never passed a person on the highway who looks like they might have uh, might need help or had a boat fly off the trailer <laughs> on them. And they do say that uh, that life is all about uh, finding your gift and finding a way to share it. And that's a certainly certainly uh, an easy way to help a stranger out. So anyway, that's it. My Canadian gift. Happy
4: holiday. <laughs>
0: Our next story in this Mudrooms compilation is from Season 3. Sitka resident Rich Forst flew to Juneau in October of 2013 to tell a fantastic true story about a special whale. The theme for this event was Coming Home.
5: Our next speaker is Rich Forrest. Rich came to Alaska in 1982 with a backpack and 50 bucks. He is the first Mudrooms storyteller to text his bio, all of this that I'm reading, after... <laughs> After hitchhiking around the state, he began a career with the US Forest Service in Juneau. Then he moved to the National Park Service in Sitka. And then he worked for NOAA in law enforcement. He's been self employed since 1991 and owns a marine wildlife company, still in text message. Rich is a pilot. He's a pilot, EMT, and a dive master, as well as an avid biker, runner, and swimmer. He met Amanda at, I'm just reading here. <laughs> He met Amanda at some half-assed triathlon where she roped him into speaking this gig. Here's Rich.
4: My story begins on a sunny uh, afternoon in Sitka. I was mowing the lawn at our house, and uh, my son came up to me and says, Hey, Dad, there's a whale out there It's really acting funny. So I look, and sure enough, this whale is breaching in the water, and obviously in some kind of distress. So we decide that uh, we'll go out and help this thing. We had a boat in the water at the time, and it had been diving that morning, so all of our dive gear was in the boat. And we wandered down the dock, and my son motored around to the whale there, and uh, I was putting my gear on, and, and by the time we got there, I had all my gear on, was ready to get in the water. So by now, the whale had settled down a little bit and was just resting in the water. This was a humpback, a full-grown adult. So I got in the water, and I approached this whale from the front of it so it would kind of know we were there and maybe have an idea of what was going on. And I uh, got in the water and got down to the whale, and it was like approaching a fuselage of a jet, just huge. And uh, got and saw that there was a line coming from its mouth and around its pectoral fin and down to its tail, and then continued on to the depths of the water. So I didn't want to get around this line too much, so I swam down to the tail and decided, well, I'll go down and see what's down there. I don't want to be messing with this or trying to cut it and have this whale take off with who knows what coming at me in the line. So I dove down to about 60 feet, a depth of 60 feet, and saw that there was a crab pot. And what had happened is this well was struggling so much that it, it tangled itself up more but it also got in a little bit shallower water where this commercial 100 pound pot was now sitting on the bottom. So I can see it just kind of rise up a little bit off off the bottom and go down and a small cloud of silt would be stirred up. Did that a couple times. So I cut it, got that off. I worked my way up the line to the tail and every three feet I would just make a cut again so nothing's behind me got up to the tail of this whale, and the line was wrapped about seven times around the fluke, and just embedded in the blubber, obviously very painful. I couldn't get my knife up in there to cut it, so I started to unwrap it, and I I had to pull. It was really embedded in the skin. And I made a couple laps around his tail, which is about 12 feet, so it's quite a swim, 12 and 12, 24, and that took a little time, I did that two, maybe two and a half times and decided, okay, I need, to, I need to get this off here a little quicker. So I cut and was able to just give it a tug a little bit, and I can feel it just kind of on the bone, and I knew it had to be extremely painful. But the whale stayed there and just waited for me to do this, and I was aware of the danger and what could happen, so I was keeping an eye on any movement or anything like that. So I was able to get that off, and off its tail and so now the whale could move a little bit and it was just on now on the surface breathing so i worked my way to the pectoral fin and slowly cut the line again every few feet and now there's line just kind of drifting all over in the water just neutral all around me and uh, got that off of the pectoral fin and worked my way forward and now i'm working forward and I'm cutting and cutting, I get closer and I get to the jaw and first the eyeball and then the jaw. And at that point I realized, okay, you know, this is uh, getting close to his mouth and all he'd have to do is go like that and I'd just vortex into him. (laughs) So for the first, I got a little nervous right then. And then I looked over and there he is, his eyeball was no farther than this away from me. And I looked him in the eye thinking, I'm cool. Are you cool? (laughs) And we looked at each other, and the whale, I can tell you a whale's eyeball is about the size of a softball. And he takes a slow blink, just like that, and back up. And I thought, okay. So I worked my way forward, and I saw that the line there was a loop going right inside his mouth of about one inch line, pretty substantial line. I'd cut the remaining end of the crab pot line off, and grabbed this and kind of gave it a tug, and it was really in there. So I hung onto it for a minute, and I put my foot up there, and I just, <clears throat> and I really pulled, and it wouldn't move. And at that point, the well moved a little bit away from me, and I just reached with my knife, and I put it right under the, that loop, because I wanted to get that loop cut, thinking, well, it'll slide out at some point. And I, I was being pulled, and I cut it. I got it off, and then the well turned, and he came to me and now I surfaced and my son had told him just leave the thing running and be ready to come and get me if I wave and he came right over and he's there and the whale's coming at me and I put my arms out not knowing what he's going to do so I could just be brushed around him and he came right out at me I had my arms out like this and he turned a little bit and pretty soon the pectoral fin came in contact with me and he just gave me the most gentle but forceful like that and I was just swept out of the way my snorkel was flapping in the water and I bit down on my regulator the well surfaced and was breathing and gave out us several uh, sounds or grunts about three times so I took my BC and tank off and weight belt and threw it in the small whaler we had at the time and jumped in and uh, we watched this well we followed him for maybe 30 minutes just really, literally, off into the sunset. And we later had learned that there was a whale spotted. It would have been about April of the following year in Hawaii with a small amount of line coming out of its mouth. So uh, my son says to me, he goes, Dad, I, I think we saved him. And I says, yeah, yeah, I think we saved him. So the whale was literally drowning, and we were able to untangle him, and, uh, and he survived. So that's my story. Thanks for listening.
0: Tony Tangs is the next storyteller in this special Mudroom Sampler program. Tony's story was told in November 2013, and the theme was Scars.
1: Our last speaker tonight is Tony Tangs. Tony was born at the former St. Anne's Hospital on 6th Street. He hasn't made it very far in life. He's been self-deployed, chasing rainbows most of his life, but his day job as a bartender on the Alaska Marine Highway keeps him afloat. His friends tell him not to give up his day job. He once entertained a gentleman for three days whose 15 minutes of fame would be as the recipient of a shotgun blast to the face from Vice President Dick Cheney. Although he was raised in Haynes, his mother assures him he was conceived at the Capitol Hotel in Whitehorse. Tony believes this fact could be grounds for dual citizenship. <laughs> and that right to lifers should hardly concur. Welcome to the stage, our last speaker tonight, Tony Tangs.
6: I'm gonna tell you about my lucky scars, all of which, uh, three lucky scars anyway, that uh, are related in that um, I didn't know about them while they were happening. My first memory is associated with a scar. I'm in a, in a crib looking through the, through the uh, slats and there's a, it's a brightly lit room and a fellow is presenting a little brown bottle to me and that has some fluid in it and a bone and I'm understanding that that bone has come from my foot which is bandaged and has a toe, one of my toes which had been removed. My mother had taken me to Sitka to see this surgeon who was going to do the honors of taking one of my toes off because I was a polydactyl baby. And um, so he had done such a thing and he um, took off basically what was then, up till then, my, my ring toe, which is the one next to the little, little piggy, the one that goes wee 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 all the way home. He took off the ring toe and the entire meta uh, tarpal, metataris bone that goes up the foot, so I had a scar going up my foot. He did the best job he could dealing with such a small, fine baby's foot. And, uh, but as I grew up, that, that's, that scar also grew up and grew in proportion to me growing up until you know, what had been former little teeny suture marks probably as close as the doctor could get, we're now an inch apart. So these little, it looked very crude, and looks very crude to this to this day. I was very embarrassed about that scar, and when I'd be out um, in public, say at a beach with my friends, I would oftentimes bury that part of my foot in the sand or cover it up with my right foot, you know, because we always want to fit in and look like everybody else, and everyone was trying to be Barbie and Ken, and look bilaterally symmetrical and beautiful and I was not bilaterally symmetrical and beautiful but anyway uh, I know my mother and my dad they, they wanted me to be bilaterally symmetrically beautiful and um, they didn't want me to be a curiosity in that regard of having a sixth toe and they had the operation done plus there was a, a, a thought that maybe I could just uh, be easier to buy shoes buy them off the rack and not have to have special shoes made. My godparents, God bless them, they, they, they told me it was a lucky thing, a very lucky sign to have this sixth toe, and I should be thankful for it. And, and I was very charming and sweet of them to tell me that, and, and, and even though it was charming and sweet, you know, I, I do think there was something to that. Uh, my other, one of the other memories after that of, of uh, scarring event was two years later, when I was four, I woke up in a hospital in Whitehorse. Um, And then once again, bright lights, and my eyes adjusted to the light, and I'm seeing a room full of toys, which were all for me. I had been through an accident, I'd I'd apparently flown through the windshield of our Lincoln Continental, uh, and head on with a pickup truck just south of Watson Lake. Uh, my mother and I were were riding in the car, which was being driven by my godmother's brother, while my father was back in Haines. and we did this head-on, and uh, we we're very lucky. I was I was in the 80 percentile seat in the passenger seat, on my mother's lap, so it was her seat belt, and I had just flown through, and uh, fortunately, uh, it was a window which breaks and and causes. Uh, scars, and and not something very solid that my head would have just splatted against, and uh, we survived that. My mother also took care of me, apparently, having survived something of concussion proportions. She really, apparently, just helped take care of me during that accident. And also, fortunately, uh, there was a, a hearse being driven by some beatniks, really. I mean, this was 1958, they were beatniks, okay, before the hippies. And they were behind us in the road, and they stopped, took their crap out of the hearse, and put us in, and drove us into Watson Lake, where I was flown to um, into the hospital in whitehorse and I mean some some say what a miracle it was that I survived. I think uh, you know, my very godmother was working overtime that day I'm thankful about that. Some people say, well, you know that there are various factors it was uh my hard Neanderthal head, you know, which saved me, or the steel they put in those Lincoln Continentals. Personally, I think it was um, a combination a holy trinity of uh, the beatniks, my mama, and the ghost of my lucky baby toe. <laughs> That's that was the holy trinity on that one. The other, the other little scarring event. Is really something, it's not much that that people talk about that much. Um, It's something that we, that is very bilaterally symmetrical in a beautiful and central way. And it's something that a lot of boys don't learn about until much years and years and years later. And you hear about being circumcised and you go, what? (laughs) What the heck? And you go, well, that doesn't matter. And then you read in science news, about all the extra pleasure receptors in that extra tissue. And you go, man, I got ripped off. And you don't feel lucky. But then you think about it. And you go, dang, if I had any more receptors down in that pleasure center, I wouldn't get anything done. So you thank your lucky scars.
0: You're listening to a Mudroom Sampler program on KTOO News Juno. These stories were selected from the first five seasons of Mudrooms beginning in 2011. To date, this live storytelling program has raised over $99,000 for nonprofits in Juno. The first event in Season 8 is just around the corner on September 11th. You can find out more information on their Facebook page or at mudrooms.org. The next story's theme is Sibling Rivalry and was told by Marcus Blankenship during Mudrooms Season 4 in November 2014.
5: All right, our next speaker is Marcus Marcus Blankenship. Marcus is a 28-year-old first-year teacher at Thunder Mountain. He was raised by his grandparents in the small town of Odinville, Alabama, near Birmingham. Marcus has lived his entire life in Alabama until around August 15th when he moved to Juneau for his teaching job. That began on August 20th. He turned down a job in Alabama in order to take the job here in Juneau because he was ready for an adventure. And get this, teaching Alaska history has proved itself to be an adventure for this Alabama native. Please welcome Marcus.
7: Yes. Roll Tide, Roll Tide. I may be wearing orange, but my blo- I bleed crimson. Those of you who are football fans, you'll know what I'm talking about. Um, so yes, um, uh, teaching Alaska history has been quite an adventure, and that's a story in and of itself, but we're not here for that. Um, so let me tell you first how I kind of got roped into this, and yes, roped is the word. I'm sitting in my classroom, minding my own business, doing my very best to avoid grading papers, uh, and Pat Roach walks in there and he says, Marcus do you have any brothers and sisters? I said, well, technically I have nine. I'll explain the technical part in a minute. Um, and he said, wow, I bet you have stories. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's some stories. Well, you, wouldn't, you should do mudrooms. You want to do mudrooms. And contrary to what my students would say, I do have a hard time saying no, um, uh, especially to my friends. And so I automatically said, yeah, I'll do mudrooms. Um, and he left. And then, I thought, what in the hell have I agreed to? Um, and so I got to thinking about it. Uh, what am I going to talk about? Uh, and so let me explain that technically part of nine. You know, if you can't tell from the way I talk in my introduction, I am not from Alaska, I am from Alabama. Uh, and I have that very you know, traditional Alabama family. My uh, father's my brother, my mother's my ex-sister-in-law, my, my brothers and sisters are my nieces and nephews. Um, And this is true. This is very true. Which I should say, though, I was adopted by my grandparents. I was adopted by my father's parents, so that's why my mother is my Um, uh, ex-sister-in-law. Sometimes it's best that way. It's easier to not talk to your Um, ex-sister-in-law. But, so, actually, though, as far as my real brothers and sisters, there are nine of us. My mother and father... Uh, while they were married. They had three. That's me, Amanda, and Matthew. And my father, from his first marriage, she had a daughter. Uh, And my mother, from her second, let's call it a marriage, uh, she had had a daughter as well. Um, And then my father's been married to my stepmother, my current stepmother, for 15 years. So I've got two stepsisters through that. And then my father and stepmother adopted uh, their two foster children about seven years ago. So when you add it up, there are nine of us, Um, and so yeah, I should have lots and lots of stories about brothers and sisters, but here's the thing, we were all raised in different places. Um, uh, My sister stayed with our mother, I went with my grandparents, my brother stayed with our father, uh, the oldest sister, she lived in Georgia, and I haven't seen her since 2005, Um, uh, and you know, on top of that, the the more I thought about it, um, well I do have some some stories about my brothers and sisters, uh, you know, I, I'm not really that close with them. Uh, the more I thought about stories about my brothers and sisters, I started to kind of get a little bit depressed because I don't have lots of stories about Amanda and Matthew. Um, you know, Matthew was always a stoner, um, uh, and you know, I was the overachiever, so we didn't fit in. Uh, Amanda, pardon my language, but she's a bitch. Um, <laughs> I, I love my sister, and she, she fits in in the military. She, she went into the military, and it was a perfect fit. But, um, you know, that said, as, as much as I do love them, we were all raised in different places. Um, and so I don't have lots of traditional stories. I, I can't tell you about the time I launched my brother into the air. Um, uh, my sister and I did work together for a moment at Joe's Crab Shack. Um, that was that was just terrible, but but so as I thought about it, I started to get a little bit started to feel kind of sad. I don't have I don't have lots of stories that I can tell. And then I thought, well, what what the hell am I going to tell to these people? Uh, I got on the internet and I tried to look up stories. So I thought maybe I can you know maybe I can tell somebody else's story. Um, that seemed seemed a bit uh, disingenuous. So. Uh, I decided to keep thinking, and it actually hit me uh, the night before last. Um, uh, yeah, it was, it, it, it snuck up on me. Um, but so I'm sitting in my bed uh, and trying to think about what am I going to say uh, and trying to avoid thinking about it, so I'm going through some old emails. Um, and I found one from my friend Key, and it was titled uh, Cats and Kudzu. Uh, I don't know if any of you have ever been so the southern part of the United States, uh, kudzu is uh, a terrible plant that's just eating the South. Um, uh, and there's no way to get rid of it. But so I read this email, and it was stories. Her and I had once had this, this plan that we were going to write our college memoir. Um, we graduated in 09 and we still haven't been published. Um, <laughs> but so I go through this email, and I start reading stories that her and I said, you know, told back and forth. Um, and I started thinking about Key, and her and I always competed to see who would have the highest GPA. She won that one. Um, and then I started thinking about my friend Anna, and her and I always competed about who was gonna, you know, be the loudest or uh, who would be the center of attention at wherever we were together. Uh, we usually tied there. One time we did compete over uh, a common love interest. I won that one. Um, and. You know, then I started thinking about Colin, and he and I would always have these uh, deep philosophical discussions about uh, how the world works, and politics, and uh, always tried to compete on who could fit in the most still Magnolia quotes into a conversation. Um, which he does vote Democrat now, so I, I won that one. Um, uh, and you know, then I thought about my really good friend Jessica, uh, and her and I, we were always like brothers and sisters. Uh, always trying to talk over the other one uh, and get the next word in. Um, you know, Collins in Oklahoma City, Key's in San Francisco, uh, Jessica's in Washington, D.C., uh, Anna's in Panama City, uh, and I'm here in Juneau, Alaska, so we're all over the country. But, you know, I talk to these people more than I do my actual brothers and sisters, and I realized I do have brothers and sisters. It isn't always about blood relation, are the people that share a parent or something like that, but it's, it's those people that are there for you. And you know, if Jessica called me tomorrow and said she'd need me, I'd drop everything and fly across the country for her. And so the more I thought about it, I did realize I do have brothers and sisters and I do have those wonderful experiences uh, and people that I hold dear in my heart. And so I, over the last couple of days, I've made a point to call all of them. Uh, and let them all know how much I love them and uh, remind them of all the times that I bested them. Um, uh, (laughs) But, you know, they had some pretty good times. They bested me, too. Um, So maybe mine's not about traditional, my story may not be about traditional um, sibling rivalry, but if you take anything from it, I hope you take that uh, your brothers and sisters don't have to be related to you. Uh, These people are my brothers and sisters, and... When it's time to go into the great unknown, they're the people that I want around me uh, and that I want to be surrounded with. And I feel love in my heart for them, and I'm so thankful, and my life's better to have them. Uh, but thank you all for listening to my story.
0: The following story was told by Catherine Hatch in the April 2014 event of Mudrooms. The theme was deception.
5: Catherine Hatch is our next speaker. Catherine is rounding out her second year living in Juno, right next door to me, actually. She's really from Texas, but spent years trying to escape by moving away first to Germany, then Massachusetts, France, Switzerland, back to Germany, and now here. She spends her days toiling for the wonderful Juno Arts and Humanities Council, and every so often you'll catch her running up and down the stairs to the Rookery Kitchen as well. She is a proud owner of a whippet puppy named Tanny and my favorite neighbor. She is unusually tan because she just got back from her first ever trip to Hawaii, which she loved. Um, Relevant to her story is the fact that Catherine's father is a professional deceptionist. Please welcome Catherine to the stage.
8: I'm a little disappointed because I wrote that at the beginning of our trip to Hawaii and I thought we'd do a lot more tanning but my boyfriend got really burnt the first day and we didn't go out that much after that so just deceive yourselves if you will. Pretend. We can lower the lights or something. Anyway, there's been a lot of stories already about dads deceiving their children but (laughs) I bet you that I will be the only one whose father has printed hundreds of business cards that say on them Richard Hatch Deceptionist. <laughs> he is a professional deceptionist, and I'll get to that point a little bit later, but the first thing I want you to know, to really understand what happened in this story, uh, the mistakes that were made by me, is that I grew up in a place very far from Juno, in uh, the suburbs of Houston, Texas, as Alita mentioned. And this is a very, very different place than Juno is, <laughs> in a lot of ways. Um, Primarily, though, it's, I think, the relationship that we have with nature in, in Houston is different than here. Um, because you folks here like nature. <laughs> and we sure as heck don't. Um, we do not go outside in Texas and Houston uh, unless we can avoid it. And uh, if, we, if we can avoid it, we will not go outside. And we stay indoors where we have our air conditioning. And we, we run outside from the front door of the air-conditioned home to the door of the air-conditioned car. That's kind of the sport that we do. <laughs> so people here are always trying to get me to do the Klondike, and I'm like, no, <laughs> I don't think so. Um, and here in Juneau, where people, you know, they leave their doors unlocked, which is already crazy enough. But you leave your windows open, too, for fresh air. <laughs> this was strictly forbidden in the home I grew up in because you would let that cold air out and you would also let insects in and snakes and spiders and all sorts of crappy things. So they make this easy in public buildings in the schools that I went to, there actually were no windows. Uh, and this was pretty typical. And when power outages happen with hurricanes as they do in the South, uh, it's completely pitch black. Um, and, but that's okay, because at least the cold air stays a little bit nicer in there for a little bit longer. And um, just Texas, at least the part I grew up in, is a place where the outside stays out and the inside stays in, and it's a lot safer inside. And in my uh, climatized house, which we kept at a cool 83 degrees Fahrenheit, which is cool when you're thinking it's 115 outside, um, I lived with my mother, who's a musician, and my brother and my father, who is actually a magician. But he doesn't like that word very much, which is why he calls himself a deceptionist, which I think is a word he made up. If you Google it, you'll see photos of him. <laughs> so, But he, he likes that word better than magic because he's a magician who doesn't really believe in magic. He doesn't do, he's not a wizard, that's totally different. He's a deceptionist and he deceives his audience as he performs illusions and um, he just tricks your mind for a minute or two to think that you've seen something that, is physically impossible. And um, when you grow up with a magician, which I highly recommend, if you can get a magic dad, definitely do it. (laughs) A++, would do again. It's a lot of fun living in a magic house. Um, And my mother is a musician, as I mentioned, they have a show together. And my brother and I were in it when we were younger. Uh, I was cut very early on. I think my cuteness wore out around age four. (laughs) My brother is 24, he's still in the act. So I don't know what that's all about. <laughs> but um, we would tour around the country and do our little show. And he's, he still does it. That's his full-time job. And uh, he, he is not a very organized person. I don't know any magicians who are. I've met several. And so the things that he does with his work, if, you're a magi- if you become a professional magician, you love your job. And if you love your job, you bring your job home. And his job was all over our home his air-conditioned home. It was in piles everywhere. And he's not much of a props guy. He only recently acquired a floating woman device. (laughs) Mostly he did close-up magic. So it was little things around the house. And he was always working on new things. He's constantly developing his act. And when I was a kid, just I remember he one time got really obsessed, for example, with Rubik's cubes. And he had learned how to solve them and he wanted to somehow, he wanted to be juggling the cubes while solving them and juggle an apple and eat the cubes and be juggling and solving. As a result of this, there were Rubik's Cubes all over the house. It was on floors and everything. And I remember picking one up one time to play with it and a whole bunch of salt spilled out because that one was a Rubik's Cube salt shaker. So you just can never be sure. (laughs) There's a lot of deceptive things in the household. in our change jar, you always had to avoid that one nickel that was hollowed out that, with a little secret compartment in it for squirting water or something. My um, dad had thousands of books on magic. He opened a, sh- a bookstore at one point about magic. Um, but a couple of those books, if you took it off the shelf and opened it up, they would burst into flames, because that's just... So got... <laughs> we had a trick violin as well that would, would blow bubbles when you played it instead of music. So things are not always as you seem. And one time at home, you, you get used to that, though. You get used to not always knowing what you're doing. And I was playing. I was about five years old, and there was on a pile of books in this mess of our house um, was this brand-new rubber snake. Now, we, have, we had doves growing up, magic doves that did the normal magic things that doves do. We had a magic fish. Um, but the snake must have been new, and I didn't even notice it at first. I kept playing, but uh, I came back to it because it looked so real i mean you could see all the little scale this was top of the line rubber snake uh, (laughs) that money could buy and being five and um, being in our secure climatized house i i just wanted to play with it and it looked so real i wanted to see if it indeed felt just as real as it looked and without hesitation i went to go pet it and that is when it became very real very quickly, it slithered off the boxes, and its little tongue did the thing, and um, this was upstairs near my bedroom, so I jumped back, but behind me is the staircase, so in front of me, sudden death, eaten eat by snake. Behind me, sudden death, fall down, break a neck. Or the third option, which is what I did, I screamed, and I screamed, and my dad came out of his office, which was also upstairs, and he's annoyed because he's on a phone, it's magic business. Um... <laughs> He snapped into action, he dropped the phone, grabbed the snake, ran downstairs, out the front door. In the commotion, somebody's handed him a cleaver, and I go downstairs, and whap! Clears the head right off. And this is not the first time he's killed a snake. I mean, every other time he mowed the lawn, just... Gotta flip it over, (laughs) move the snake, keep going. But it was the first time he'd done it with a cleaver, and when you do this, it's just like in the movies, the head keeps going. I swear. It's so scary. But it died, and there was blood everywhere, and it was fine. (laughs) And believe it or not, I did not develop one of those Indiana Jones-like phobias of snakes. I mean, I survived, so whatever, I can handle them. Um, But I did learn that if you're ever visiting a magician's house, you should maybe just keep your hands in your pockets. (laughs) Thank you very much.
0: The last story tonight in this special Mudrooms compilation is themed romantic entanglements and was told by Juno's Stephanie Ashley in February 2016.
5: All right, our next speaker is Stephanie Ashley. Stephanie was born and raised in Las Vegas and moved to Juno 12 years ago. She graduated from UAS and has one five-year-old boy. She works for the city, which consists of driving in circles all day. Please help me welcome Stephanie.
9: So, has anyone ever done online dating? <laughs> and if you have, you probably have your own stories to tell about the situation. Well, when I heard about this, I knew exactly which story I would tell. So I drive the city bus, and I'm getting off for of work, I get an invite from someone I have been chatting with online to basically come and play cards with him and a group of friends that were all women. I was a bit hesitant, I didn't quite want to go, it was late. I didn't want the wrong impression to be made because I wasn't quite looking for anything weird. Yeah, I think is what I kind of uh, worded it as. I probably should have said something more like, I really wanted to say, I don't want to walk into an orgy or anything, but maybe in the end that's probably what I should have said. Um, <clears throat> so I'm like, eh, no, I don't think so. It's kind of late. I don't. I'm not looking to do anything this late at night. He's like, oh no, no, we're just playing cards. I promise that's all we're doing. We're just playing cards. He actually had some of the women that were there call me on my phone to tell me I should come. So in the end, I relented. I was like, okay, I'm gonna come, but let's be clear as to what's going to happen. I'm coming to play cards. I'm coming to meet people just to be friendly. That's it. I'm not interested in anything else happening. He said, oh, that's perfectly fine. Okay, okay. So I show up to this house. And a few other people had shown up since I had had the phone call. So there was the man that I was talking to, another woman that I assume at the end of the night was his girlfriend, um, <clears throat> the woman that owned the house, and a married couple that were there. They were all were playing cards at the time that I showed up. Suddenly they're shoving drinks at me. Oh, drink this, oh, drink this, drink this. So maybe that should have been a red flag as, for as to why they were shoving drinks in my face. So as the night continues, you know, they kind of just chat. They go into the garage to smoke and kind of people start acting weird. Like, I just thought, I have shown up to a party where people are already drunk and so they're acting strangely, and that's the extent to what I thought. So we're sitting around the TV and they're talking about music. Something's happening. The woman, the, the, the girlfriend that I find out about later, she's acting strange, so I'm not really sure what's going on, but I'm just kind of, all right, let's just let this go. I turn around. The married woman and the woman that owned the house, I turn around and they're making out in the kitchen. And I'm like, okay, well, that's not the first time that's happened. So I've seen those things before. Okay, this just might be the thing. So we're like hey, now I've probably been there about an hour. Suddenly, the girl, she's like suddenly running around and she goes downstairs. This is like the girlfriend, who I am now labeling as the girlfriend. She starts running downstairs and she's, I don't know if she's crying or what the deal is going on. So the man's talking to me and he starts talking about something, he's like, so I'm sorry so-and-so is acting weird. I'm like, ah, yeah, you know, whatever, that's their deal. Or, you know, she's, I don't, I don't know what's going on. But finally he tell, turns to me, he's like, well, we were kind of hoping you'd have a threesome with us. And I was like, what? I actually started laughing hysterically. <laughs> And he's like, is that funny? Are you, you know, oh, is that a horrible thing? I said, that's what you guys wanted, that's your thing. But I think I was pretty clear about what I was expecting when I showed up. And he runs down to take care of the friend after I kind of explain that I am not hanging out anymore. So I go into the garage because I'm trying to be polite, say goodbye. So I go in there and the married woman is not happy with me. It seemed that she, they seemed to all be under the impression that I knew what I was walking into, into that situation. And and so I'm like, I think I'm going to leave. And they're like, that's a good idea. And maybe some other words may have come from her mouth. And in the end, I'm like, yeah, I'm leaving. And I go grab my stuff. I start to leave. And the, the man that's married, he comes like, I'm really sorry. And you know, it's nice to meet you and stuff. Uh, Maybe you should go say goodbye to so-and-so. I'm like, yeah, I think they went down there. I think I'm not going to interfere with whatever's going on with that couple downstairs. He's like, okay, maybe, yeah, that's a good idea. So I left. I went home. And I was like, I cannot believe this just happened. (laughs) And then I realized I had left my $35 snow cleats at this house, and then I was totally SOL when I went home. I went to work the next day because I had no way to not slip on the ice at work. But I was like, well, I could go. Maybe I could sneak in and get them back. Maybe not. Yeah, I think that's a loss. But that is the story. <laughs> <laughs> it was something I was really upset with for a while, but then later I thought it was more funny, especially now that I could be like, you know, if you're going to be online, you might want to be clear because then you might be the subject of a story in a situation like this where know, <laughs> small and... Uh, Now you might suddenly hear something (laughs) and know it's about you.
0: been listening to the last of the summer sampler programs of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event on KTOO News Juno 104.3 FM. The theme for season 8's kickoff event on Tuesday, September 11th is Lost and Found. To tell your story or to find out about more upcoming events, visit mudrooms.org. Audio production by Rich Moniak. Additional help from Alita Bus, Tom Cosgrove, Sarah Hannon, Melissa Griffiths, and Jeff Smith. I'm Amanda Compton. Have a good night.